Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 96, Star Trek 6, The Undiscovered Country. to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we analyze a Star Trek story or two, sifting through for messages, morals, and meanings, and trying to figure out whether any or all of it holds up. Lo, these many years later. Ken, today we're doing Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Can I just cut to the chase and say that we got Shakespeare right in the title? Because as we know... When you don't know where else to go, you go for Shakespeare. Honestly, it, it's like, it, you know, there's a thing, you know, they, they did this line in Barton Fink uh, about Hollywood, throw a rock in this town, yeah. you, you'll hit a writer. Yeah, right. Um, if you took all the pages of Star Trek VI and put them on a wall, blindfolded yourself, and threw a dart, mm-hmm. you would hit a Shakespeare quote. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. Well, <laughs> the line actually comes from Hamlet. And uh, to put it into a little bit better context here, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will. Hitler, and, 1938. Oh, oh, wait, I'm sorry. That's yeah. later. My That's bad. That's later. Yeah. 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 But nice little line to, uh, to put that title into context. I thought it was uh, a nice bit to grab. Um, Ken, I, I feel like today's episode is just going to be chock full of discussion and information. So uh, before we get into that, I do want to remind people how they can reach out to us. We get fabulous emails and comments and Facebook posts from everybody. And I really, really appreciate it. If you want to chime in on that conversation, you can reach us at Facebook, Skype, and Twitter in all three places. The handle is just Mission Log Pod. Or you can call us 323-522-5641. You can email us missionlog at roddenberry.com. We also have a lovely home on the internet. You can find us at missionlogpodcast.com. That's where we keep our uh, discovered documents and archive of shows. And uh, remember, you can also find us at trekmovie.com. So big, big thanks to the people at trekmovie.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. You know, John, this is, I think, episode 96 of this show. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, you know, for a change, I do trivia this week. Oh, okay, go right ahead. Yeah. So, uh, Star Trek VI Mm -hmm. is um, a movie. Yeah, right, right. And uh, uh, do you, do you, any guesses where it might fall in the number of movies? Well, you know, it's it's interesting, yeah. John. A lot uh-huh. of people don't know this, but it's actually the sixth uh, film in the Star Trek franchise. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I and that's that's pretty much all I could find. It, it, I know you probably prepared. Do you actually have other other trivia you'd like to share? I found one or two other things. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and I, you know, can I have to preface this again by saying that with these movies, there is just a tremendous amount of data. So uh, trivia basically comes down to 
what did I find interesting this week? <laughs> you know, there is a lot of good information out there. In fact, uh, Mark Altman co-authored a book about the making of Star Trek VI. I would recommend finding that um, if you want to get even more into the nitty-gritty detail of what made this movie. Um, First off, as you know, every week during the movies, I've been talking about budget uh, because I've been finding that to be quite interesting. Um, what do you think happened after Star Trek V? Well, we lowered the budget just by a little bit. Star Trek VI comes in at about $27 million. Worldwide, it grossed just under $100 million, so not a bad return on that. Um, the original idea pitched was to go to the young crew concept. So you have Kirk and Spock at the Academy, and uh, the slightly older McCoy is kind of telling the story about how this group of people came together. So yeah, it's a reboot. It's doing the show with younger actors in the familiar roles. When that idea got pitched by Harv Bennett, uh, that led to the ousting of Harv Bennett. That did not go over well. It did not go over well with producers, did not go over well with the cast. Uh, a little bit of that fan uh, uh, response, you know, again, this is pre-internet, but uh, there were enough fans who knew about it. It just was not a very popular idea. Um, another one that came out, uh, Walter Koenig had his own idea for a script uh, that would have had the crew pretty much disbanded. Only Spock is on active duty. And uh, then the the rest of the old crew have to get reassembled to go find him and help him. And it pretty much leads to the death of, well, nearly everybody in the cast. His <laughs> idea did not fly either. Um, so was he just like done? Yeah, yeah. So, hey, props to Walter for uh, going out with a big finish, right? Or trying to. Or trying to, yes. Uh, now, when we get around to the script that became Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, uh, it depends on who you talk to uh, when you want to get to the bottom of who had what idea. Now, the original concept was brought to Nicholas Meyer by Leonard Nimoy. Um, and they, it's kind of funny. They, they go back and forth a little bit about who gets to take credit for what brilliant, inspired, or hilarious moment in the film belongs to whom. Uh, but it was Leonard Nimoy who said, what if we do the wall coming down? And for those of you who are under a certain age, <laughs> that would parallel the Berlin Wall, the Iron Curtain. What if that fell and we parallel that into outer space? And Nick Meyer kind of took it and ran with it. Um, there are a lot of missing scenes that were in the early draft of the script. Uh, we got to catch up on what everybody is up to. Sulu is driving a cab. Uhura. No. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I swear. Uh, Uhura doing talk radio. No. <laughs> so Sorry. All, all of this was planned and it would have pushed the budget quite a bit higher. So they cut all of that. <laughs> when actually went into production. Yeah. I'm sorry. So when Sulu is not captain of the Excelsior, he drives a cab. Well, everybody has to make a little extra money. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, in the, our future. Not, no. not in the 23rd century. <laughs> right. right. Although some people would give good money if we would just shut up about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good line. Good yeah. callback. That's good what line. we call Thank that you. in the business. Yeah. Hello. All right. Um, now, clearly... Clearly, going back to that uh, Iron Curtain reference, there is something very topical 
about this movie. A um, little bit of that background for anybody who doesn't know. The explosion of the Klingon moon Praxis is meant to parallel the explosion of the nuclear power plant at Chermo- Chernobyl, which happened in April of 1986. Um, that moment helped to move along the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was finally dissolved in uh, December of 1991. Um, There is another current event, though, that we have to use to put this movie into context, and that current event would be Star Trek V. Um, That movie did not do so well, critically or at the box office. Star Trek VI was meant to capitalize on the 25th anniversary of Star Trek, which was in 1991. And it was hoped that the original series franchise would not go out on a downer. Uh, so that kind of helps to explain why and where this movie fits into the uh, the pop culture story of Star Trek. Um, and uh, by the way, Ken, did you notice uh, a young Christian Slater in the movie? Did I notice a young Christian Slater? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's in Shadow, kind he of. He is. He is. But yeah. I mean, it's Christian Slater. Yeah, no mistaking it was Christian Slater. And uh, he was there because his mom was the casting director. Uh, so yeah. That's not completely fair. No? If my mom were the casting director and she put me in a Star Trek movie, that would obviously be because my mom was there. I mean, Christian Slater was a name. Yeah, he was a name. He I mean, was it's, a not, name. You know, it's yeah. not like yeah. it's not like she put her However, eight-year-old in it. No, no. However, there were other actors who were up for that bit role. And, You're kidding me. Oh, no, no. I well, swear. I mean, there would be other actors because yeah. everybody wants to be in a movie. But, I mean, were there names? Were there other names that were up for that yeah. role? <laughs> well, slightly. Uh, but it, you know, she she lobbied for him, and he is a, uh, a Star Trek fan, and uh, they got him in there. Sure. So, yeah. Why so wouldn't you? There, yeah. there is a character coming up in The Next Generation who is only there because the actress who plays her said... I want to be in Star Trek. So, I mean, really, Christian Slater yeah, getting like 20 seconds of screen time is not bad. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about some of the other guest stars. Um, Valeris, who is played by Kim Cattrall. Uh, now, that character would have originally been Savick, but uh, Gene Roddenberry objected vehemently to the idea of making uh, someone who is known as a good guy then play out as a villain. Um and I just kept thinking, wow, imagine how that would have played out if we had kept the storyline of Spock's child with uh, Savick yeah. from the previous movies. Whole other, whole other thing there. Um, and actually, Kim Cattrall originally auditioned for the role of Savick. So um, here, three movies later, she gets to come back and actually play this character who would have been Savick. She was much happier with the idea that this was a different character now that Savick had been played by two other actors. Um, and by the way, according to rumor, uh, Cattrall posed in, uh, well, nothing other than her Vulcan ears on the bridge during off hours. Uh, those pictures, I'm sad to say, if the rumor holds up, uh, they were destroyed. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Uh, we do want to mention that David Warner is back at the behest of Nick Meyer. Of course, they had worked together in Time After Time, and we saw much too little, the, the, the underused David Warner in Star Trek V. So uh, very cool to see him here. And um, Christopher Plummer, uh, just Wow. Chewing the scenery in this movie. He performed in Shakespearean theater with Shatner in Canada. Um, he hated 
when Shatner, who uh, was sometimes his understudy, would perform in his place. Uh, there are some great stories about uh, about their sort of uh, friendly rivalry online. Uh, Shatner to this day says that Christopher Plummer is his favorite Trek villain guest star, and we can understand why. Now, um, I saved this little bit of trivia, which is not, not trivial, um, and I feel like there are a lot of people who already know about this, but I I want to get into this just a little bit because it will help shape our discussion uh, toward the end of the show. Um, Gene Roddenberry is not a fan of this movie. Uh, he died actually a few days after seeing the initial cut. And uh, he fought a lot of the decisions that were made along the way. Now, like I mentioned, he died in October of 1991. This movie came out in December. Um, when he saw an early screening of it uh, in October, he actually sent a... Uh, well, a very, very wordy and uh, not too happy memo back to the production about the things that he wanted cut. Um, I'd say that one of the more significant bones of contention here and one that was left out of the theatrical release but put back in for home video was the character of Colonel West, played by René Aubergenois, who, of course, we will see in later Star Trek Deep Space Nine, to be specific. Uh, we will have more to say about that and how that would have played out toward the end of the show, so please stay tuned. The list of stars and guest stars in this movie would give a two-hour episode of The Love Boat a run for its money. It's Star Trek, meets Sex in the City, meets Roots, meets The Sound of Music, meets That 70s Show, meets Heathers, meets Star Trek The Next Generation, meets Max Headroom 20 Minutes Into the Future, meets Time Bandits, meets David Bowie's wife. And I may have left someone out. What you need to know. Kirk's son David is still dead still killed by the Klingons, and Kirk is still having a hard time with that. His son, killed by the Klingons, the age-old enemy of Starfleet and the Federation. What happens? Praxis, the top source of energy for the entire Klingon Empire, explodes. Like, half the planet is gone. Some of it gets on the USS Excelsior, under the command of Captain Hikaru Sulu. He asks if the Klingons need help, but they say, "'Tis merely a scratch." Go away. Three months later, it turns out it was more than a scratch. The Klingons are going to have to retool everything. They don't have the resources to continue their lifestyle of shoot first, shoot again, come round for another pass and shoot again, and leave the question asking for the humans. At the request of the Vulcan ambassador Sarek, Vulcan Starfleet Captain Spock has negotiated a meeting between Klingon Chancellor Gorkan and Federation President Clarence Boddicker, or Federation President Red Foreman. You choose the Kurtwood Smith name that's right for you. The Federation's first show of good faith send Captain Kirk and the Enterprise to escort Chancellor Gorkun and his ship back to Earth. Admiral Cartwright and Captain Kirk are really unhappy about this. Cartwright's like, we should kill the Klingons now, then negotiate. Kirk's like, what he said. The CNC of Starfleet is like, you got your orders, do your job. Spock's like, come on, Jim, the Klingons are dying. Kirk's like, and? And I'm like... Done with the whole like thing. On the Enterprise, we meet Lieutenant Valeris, first Vulcan to graduate top of her class from Starfleet Academy. If Spock were capable of human emotion, which he is, he'd be proud of her, which he is. When this is all over, he wants her to replace him aboard the Enterprise. The ship rendezvous with Chancellor Gorkin's ship. Kirk invites the Klingons over for dinner, which is crazy. 
Klingons and Starfleet officers have never dined together on a Federation starship before. Well, not since the last movie, anyway. Gorkin brings a few people along with him. His daughter, a military advisor, a couple of other Klingons, and General Chang, who is also really military. Dinner does not go well. Maybe it was the Romulan ale, maybe it was the deep-seated distrust and hatred the two groups have for each other. Only Gorkin and Spock are really into this whole thing, though they're both trying to get Kirk on board. Later that night, disaster. The Enterprise seems to fire on Chancellor Gorkin's ship, though the Enterprise did not. Two hits and the Klingon cruiser's gravity is knocked out. Then two people in Starfleet pajamas with matching helmets and magnetic booties beam over to the Klingon ship, kill a lot of Klingons, and wound Chancellor Gorkin. Checking ship's sensors... Oh, now it looks like the Enterprise did fire on the Klingon ship. That's weird. Incredibly angry, General Chang brings the Klingon ship around to blow up the Enterprise, but before he can get off a shot, Kirk signals his surrender. He and McCoy will beam over to Gorkin's ship to see what's happened and offer assistance. The only problem... Bones is a doctor, not a... Klingon doctor. He revives Gorkin just long enough for Gorkin to tell Kirk not to let the peace talks die. Then he dies. Kirk and McCoy are taken to a Klingon court where they are pronounced guilty. Kirk is damned by words from his own personal log. Never trusted Klingons. Never will. They murdered my boy. Kirk and McCoy are sent to the Klingon prison planet Rurapente, where they meet a lovely alien. Well, lovely about 66% of the time. She helps them get past the holding area's perimeter. And that was way too easy. Kirk figures it for a setup. They are to be killed trying to escape, making the death of Kirk and McCoy look like their own faults, not the outright execution that it is. Or would have been if it had worked. Just before leaving the Enterprise, Spock put a Viridian patch on Kirk's back. That'll help the Enterprise locate Kirk and Bones should they make it out of the holding area. While they wait for that, Spock turns the Enterprise into an episode of Matlock. Older gentleman, Spock, with a pretty girl assistant, Valeris, walks around trying to figure out who killed the Klingons. The clues they need are on the Enterprise, since the Enterprise records were altered. That can only happen from inside the ship. The Enterprise does save Kirk and McCoy, and at about the same time, they find the missing Starfleet pajamas used in the assassination, as well as the two guys who wore them... D-E-D, dead. Kirk has a plan to draw out the person who killed the co-conspirators, and it works. The double-dealing Valeris is revealed as the conspirator. One incredibly invasive mind probe later, Valeris's co-conspirators higher up are revealed to include Starfleet's own Admiral Cartwright and the Klingons' General Chang. Now it's off to Camp Kittimer to stop the assassination of the Federation president and save the peace talks. There's just one problem. Remember those shots fired at the Klingon ship? The Enterprise really didn't fire them. They came from a Klingon bird of prey, one that can fire its weapons without decloaking. The Enterprise cannot take that on alone, but luckily Captain Sulu and the Excelsior swoop in to help, with props to Lieutenant Uhura for figuring out a way to strike the first blow. With Chang and crew blown out of the sky, Kirk and crew beam down to Camp Kittimer, save the President, nab the bad guys some of whom look like good guys. Scotty kills the would-be killer. Kirk makes the shortest Kirk speech ever. Slow clap from the assembled. The day is saved. And for the final time, the original crew of the Starship Enterprise sails off into the sun. Set. Sails off into the sunset. The end. 
<laughs> nicely done, Ken. Very nice. You know, here's the thing. I make, uh-huh. I make light of how that ended because I cried. You got choked up. Yeah, I got no, choked I, up, No, too. I didn't get yes. choked up, dude. Yeah. I cried. <laughs> I cried um, two times and got yeah. choked up one time watching Man, this because this, yeah i mean because because i mean we've been doing like a we've been doing like a just a a hard and fast watch star trek for the past over two years now of our lives mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and for them to you know leave and it's not yeah. like i didn't know i mean i saw this movie in the theater 20 however many years ago as we record this right um but still yeah having now watched every single episode of star trek and knowing definitively that i've done that yeah to watch these people say goodbye and know that they were saying goodbye just i mean if i talk about it too much now i will actually tear up again so you know let's yeah. talk about sports and <laughs> women and and how much i hate emotion shall right, we right right it's a very different feeling watching it after what we have done yeah um, yeah and and seeing that ending and the the signatures using Duh. the cast signatures rather than typical credits uh it is a send-off done in the best way possible and uh, that, that last moment i yeah. will probably say this again later too but when kirk finally after 25 years as they record this or as they mm-hmm. film this corrects mm-hmm. himself and says going where no man mm-hmm. no one has gone before yeah ah dude yeah, I can't talk about this. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, no, the, the, yeah, yeah. There, there are a lot of lines. As yeah, we get toward the end of that movie, that sort of you know that the end of the movie is coming. You know that the end of this original cast story is coming. Yep. And every one of those lines takes on more significance. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Wow. There, All there right. Will be, there will be lots of lines. Yeah. <laughs> let, let, let's stop here. All right. <laughs> no. Good night, um, everybody. Yeah, right, right. Uh, let's talk about just a couple of the, the fun and interesting observations. I, I it, Please do not take this the wrong way, Ken, or dear listeners, when I say this. Um, everyone in this movie looks older, mm-hmm. and, and quite a bit. It has been 12 years since the motion picture uh, when this movie comes out. Um, but for some reason, the age, I feel like, starts to show a bit more acutely. And um, I don't know that that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just sort of an observation on my part. Maybe it's the lighting. Maybe it's choices made with the makeup uh, or not made with the makeup. Not sure what it is. Um, But I do feel like this compared to the, uh, well, particularly compared to the last movie where it's the rough and tumble Shatner directing horses and fan dancing and shooting and everything else. This has such a different feel to it, and uh, the age of the cast, I felt, really hit home, um, kind of with what we started in Star Trek II. And mm-hmm. I'll probably reference that many times, this thread that we get between 2, 3, 4, and 6, um, because we have a lot of uh, uh, Nicholas Myers, you know, fingerprints, obviously, on a lot of that. So um, I think yeah. we should actually, I mean, I don't know if we want to do it now, if we want to go back later, mm-hmm. but we should actually talk about that age uh, part of it. Oh, I um, think we will again. All right, yeah. good. Yeah, good. Yeah. Well, then I won't say what I'm thinking now. I'll say it later. Okay. Um, Here's what I will say. Yeah, yeah. Um, everybody always says it's the odd number of movies that are bad and the even number of movies that are good. Yeah, I, I think there's that. actually quite a bit to Star Trek Three, and we discussed that uh, a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And for people who missed it. One of the beauties of a podcast is it's still there. Go back and listen. If you skip three because it's an odd number movie, I think you're missing out. Um, 
Paramount, though, would happily forget that Star Trek The Motion Picture happened and that uh, Star Trek The Final Frontier happened. Well, see, and I still defend Star Trek Motion Picture, and they would be making a mistake if they ignored that. Movie. Well, I mean, we actually, I mean, there was a lot that came out of Star Trek V as well. Was it good? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. we discussed that last week. It's not a good <laughs> right. movie, but there was a lot of interesting stuff there. But, I mean, right. it's, it's obvious that they don't, that that never happened. Right. In the right. Star Trek Pantheon. That just did not happen at all because witness the fact that, I mean, they're laughing at the end of Star Trek V about, wow, we're eating with Klingons and they're on our ship and isn't that cool? And this time they're like, I guess we could give you food if you came. You know, I mean, it's, it's, um, yeah, Star Trek V just didn't even, didn't even occur. Yeah. At that point, the animated series was more canon (laughs) Star Trek V. (laughs) Can we get a 50 foot Vulcan in here, please? (laughs) Right, right. No, seriously, can we get a 50 foot Vulcan in here? I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't. There might be room in the shuttle bay. Anyway. Um, Really, really nice to see the Enterprise working correctly for once. I know that I brought this up before and you were like, hey, it's been years between each movies and people don't remember. I remember. I remember. (laughs) (laughs) And it is really nice to see the Enterprise firing on all thrusters. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Get used to that. (laughs) Right. Um, And also really nice to see Sulu in command. Um, we had talked about uh, in the previous movies how George Takei had kind of lobbied to see a promotion for Sulu, and rightfully so. You know, I'm, I'm glad that he took it seriously and yeah. talked to the directors and writers about making that happen. And it finally happened, even after he was kind of pushed out of some of his better scenes that uh, would have occurred in the previous movies. Uh, by the way, another little piece of trivia to go with that, Falsecraft, the, uh, uh, the China company, they made a copy of Enterprise China that then went on sale shortly after this movie came out, and they also made that Excelsior teacup that Sulu is using and uh, that breaks earlier in the movie. Boy, beverage service has certainly gone up in the Federation, huh? Mm-hmm. Everybody just yeah, a, yeah. a yeoman with like a, a tray full of paper cups. Right, right, the little gray paper cup exactly. with a black stripe on it. I love those. We we should make those and sell those. That people would just wave off. You know, yeah, no, right, right. Yeah, no, great. Thank it. you very much. But, you know, they show up with the china and the tea, you know. Mm. Who's not gonna? Right, right, right. Um, we can talk about uh, Nick Meyer's hands and that kind of more militaristic vibe, and we'll talk about what Gene didn't like about that. One thing that I did like that I felt, uh, it was a great little touch to all of this. I love the clocks everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's a really simple thing, but boy, does it ground the action. Um, I thought that was just brilliant, and I would kind of like to see that in other Trek later. Um, now, they, I also what, what I found weird about those clocks, though. Forgive me for mm-hmm. interrupting. Uh, no, they, no, no, they, they seem to uh, they seem to count in what you would refer to as minutes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, oh, I guess we can convert to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like that. Um, I, I also like the uh, the kind of pumped up uh, TOS sound effects. We we've had hints of that in the other movies, but I thought I was more acutely aware of it in this movie. Uh, so that was kind of cool. By the way, you know, did you notice that for all the magic that transporters can do? I mean, if we learned anything from the animated series, they can do magic. Um, in this instance, they cannot tell you who actually got transported. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, there's there's a conspiracy afoot, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there is. One would yeah. hope that they actually, you know, checked that in the beginning. It's weird because mm-hmm. when you say that, you think now, I mean, you know, my local police department can hopefully with a warrant, but who knows, find mm-hmm. out where I've been and when. 
right? Mm-hmm. This is not like this is not spy stuff at this point. It's also spy stuff, but it's not spy stuff. Right, right. It's kind of funny how much technology had has advanced just since this movie was made. Like, mm-hmm. like one of the plot points is, well, we know that there has to be evidence here on the ship because the ship's records were changed, and that can only be done from the ship. Right. Because when this right. movie was made, it was 1991, and I think the inter- uh, the uh, internet was like an idea. Yeah. But it was not an idea that most people were aware of, and the and the idea that you would just be able to, you know, there would be a central database from which you could change it and then send it back to the Enterprise without anybody knowing. I mean, yeah. now yeah. You, would, you would have a hard time selling that, I think. Well, you, would, you would actually have to find the Klingon blood someplace to know that, okay, well, there is another clue here on the ship. Because, yeah. you know, oh, they tampered with our records. Well, gee, that could be a 13-year-old on another planet. <laughs> well, it, at least with that, we were spared early 90s movie jargon about technology, and nobody said they've hacked into the mainframe. That's true. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, so at the very least, we, we were spared that. Um, two uh, years too th- early for that line, probably. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, I know that you must have been very excited when Gorkon quoted Sticks. <laughs> I'm so mad at you for bringing that up. Ah, <laughs> you know you love it. It's playing in my head right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he did. He didn't actually say. Play. He didn't actually say. Don't let the peace talks die. He said to Kirk, "Don't let it end." I'm this begging way. you exactly. <laughs> and then everybody held up their lighters. <laughs> <laughs> and Kirk's yeah. walking around for the rest of the movie, going, to... "Right, how did that?" Right. Um. Oh, 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 and, and I thought it was really kind of cool that we get an explanation and a very clear pronunciation of sabotage. Yeah, I didn't know what she was talking about. Is that a word that we've heard before? No, not really. Well, well, you may have heard it, but uh, Captain Kirk hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sabotage. I remember yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. This is it. Kirk and Crew's last chance as a group to lead us into the future. So, what do they have for us in Star Trek VI? Well, it's not quite as bonk-bonk on the head as, um, say, Star Trek IV, maybe, but there is an ecological message to this movie. And mm-hmm. We're talking about the things to discuss and you know, what we're going to be able to take, with it, or take from it for the rest of our lives. Maybe it's because Chernobyl was so fresh, or maybe it's because they wanted to actually tell the political story, but they don't do as heavy-handed a um an ecological thing as they did in star trek four mm-hmm. but it was carelessness and bad stewardship of resources that uh, brought the klingon empire to its knees mm-hmm. and and as you say i mean that that does certainly parallel um the soviet union and i guess for some people there's absolutely nothing to learn from the uh, from the history of the soviet union because you know we're murka so <laughs> nothing like that could ever happen to us i would right. say if you if you take the if you take the soviet layer off of the Klingons and just say, oh, well, here's a warlike group of people that, that, that squandered their resources, didn't plan for the future, and now they're going to crumble. It seems to me that that would be a good lesson for any society to learn. Yeah, well, I, I agree. And actually, they made a point in the movie of saying that uh, because their military spending was so out of control yeah. and, and they had not spent on energy and you know the, their own sort of infrastructure that this is what happens when you do that <laughs> so to yeah. be clear i don't think either of us are saying right now and this is what's <laughs> happening today we're not saying that okay what we're yeah. saying is just that and forgive me for speaking for you but i just i don't mm-hmm. i don't even want to i don't even want to see the subject line of the email 
Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> right, right. All we're saying is, you know, not taking care of the future, just taking care of today, and also being uber militaristic. These are mm-hmm. things that could lead to the collapse of a society, wherever that society happens to be. Very well said, Ken. Thank you very much. Very well said. Um, I, I also thought that there was, uh, boy, there's just a lot to say about this movie. So we we may come back to topics kind of over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought there was an interesting thing here about how circumstance changes our perspective. Um, you know, we learn to develop empathy when the situation forces it. Do you remember, um, and, well, and again, we're, we're talking here as of the recording time, and uh, hopefully this podcast will live on and on and on. Uh, but not too terribly long ago, um, I remember there was a story in the news about uh, a, a U.S. senator who uh, was very much against uh, marriage equality for, for gay rights, and that it became a public thing when he changed his tune when his son came out. And I thought, well, this is really interesting because uh, here's a guy who, for whatever reason, did not have empathy for people who were not like him Mm -hmm. until until the circumstance changed that brought it home and forced him to go, oh, well, my son is a real person. Maybe I should also have empathy for other people who are like him. Um, and I thought that this movie had a, a, a tinge of that, where clearly, you know, you have Kirk at the beginning who just absolutely cannot see past um, his own hatred, his own circumstance. And, and we can talk about the justification for his circumstance for sure. He, there's a lot to justify in, uh, in where he's coming from. Um, but the situation changes. The Klingons become people. It, it certainly starting with Spock when they go through this crisis. And uh, then we have to decide what Starfleet gets to be, you know, the people who we decide we get to be because that circumstance has changed. Um, so I thought that was kind of uh, a cool and interesting moment to come out of the movie. Well, I mean, here's the thing, though. I know you're going mm-hmm. Can I direct you while we're doing this? Yeah, go right ahead. Uh, skip to the part where you want to know what happened to Kirk. Mm. With the Corbomite maneuver, you mm-hmm. said. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you've got. Mm-hmm. Forgive me. I'm going to read your notes. Um, yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I know what you mean. Yeah. You says that he. Yeah. You say that he seems to have forgotten a lot of you know what he's learned in the past of going to help your enemy or yeah. going to help somebody who's you know who's who's in trouble like he did in the Corbomite maneuver. Baylock right. was threatening to kill them, and then they get the upper hand on Baylock, and most of the crew's like, "Yeah, hey, let's leave Baylock." And Spock, uh, Kirk's like, "No, nah, no. Nah, you know what?" Our job is to go help this guy, so we're going to go help this guy. And he even tells his own crewmen, this is what we do. Yeah. 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 Well, his son had not been killed at that point. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, circumstance mm-hmm. does change us. Mm-hmm. And circumstance, it, it can do that for good, like, like you're talking about. Like, oh, well, I have a son, and I don't like gay people. And, oh, my son's gay? Okay, I like mm-hmm. gay people. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, at least I'm okay with it. Yeah. You know, conversely, I love everybody. Wait, I'm sorry. Who killed my mom? Okay, I don't love mm-hmm. them. I mean, mm-hmm. that's. I mean, that's. Circumstance does change us, and you would hope that you would always be able to rise above that. But I mean, we're only human. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, and there's another Kirk. You know, Kirk in Balance of Terror. He jumps all over his racist crew member, mm-hmm. who just all he has to do is see the pointed ear on the Romulan. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kirk says, essentially, whoa, 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 do not jump to conclusions here. You know, yeah. 
here's Spock standing right next to us, and we know who Spock is, and I'm not going to let you go down this path and become a you know a racist jerk <laughs> it was part of my crew yeah uh, but yeah yeah i mean getting over the death of his son which we don't expect him to simply get over and i'm so glad that we see at least a reference to that um in a couple of places here um then, it's actually yeah. it's actually a strong thread through the movies it's, mm-hmm. it's really mm-hmm. interesting i mean for for a tv series that would forget from one week to the next what planet they'd been to yeah, yeah. Or anything that was learned on that to to find certain themes. I mean, certainly there's Spock's death uh, is mm-hmm. a theme that runs through. Well, it has to run through two, three, and four, and it's actually referenced in this one as well. It's a great line. It's a fantastic mm-hmm. line where Scotty says, "We're dead," and Spock yeah. says, "I've been dead before." Right, right. right. You know, it's not a thing. Don't worry about it. We're we're gonna get through this because you know because that's what I do. There's a whole movie about it. You should you should go see it. I, I know it's an odd number movie, but still. <laughs> Although it, it's interesting to me that Spock in this, you know, we, we talk about how you have Spock 1.0, then you get Spock 2.0 after V'ger, then you get Spock 3.0 after he's brought back from the dead. And, and I feel like this is a much more grounded Spock. Like mm-hmm. all, all the things that happened in Star Trek 4 where he's still trying to figure out who he is and he's trying to develop a personality, which plays out in a really fun way in Star Trek Four. Now we're kind of done with that. So he, he's, he's Spock 3.0, but he's a much more grounded, much more solid Spock, who seems to be a combination of all those other Spocks. And I feel like Spock here is kind of acting like Mirror Universe Spock. He is the, the one man who will usher in a revolution. Mm, no. No? He does it at the behest of uh, Daddy. Uh, well, the Vulcan, well, he, the Vulcan remember, Ambassador Sarek, he says. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. remember, he he and Daddy patched up a lot of their issues. Well, they did, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. but it's still it's still org chart Spock. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, yeah, yeah. Well, kind of. Except, mm-hmm. I mean, except for when they are, you know, they're not allowed to go to the Klingon homeworld and just beam uh, uh, Kirk and McCoy out, or or you know, start some sort of armed incursion to get them out. Nor can they go to the Klingon homeworld. That was the Klingon prison planet, excuse me. Nor can they go to the Klingon homeworld and actually get them out. You know, while the trial's going on, mm-hmm. he's still following Starfleet orders at that point. He's fudging it a bit, though. The Enterprise oh, yeah. does work. You're absolutely right. The Enterprise does work. And they're reporting left, right, and center. Oh, I got a problem with this, and this thing's not working. And what? I'm sorry, I can't mm-hmm. hear you because communications are out and the warp drive's bad. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing is these are all believable lies because you're right. The Enterprise has not worked well right. <laughs> ever since yeah. Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the yeah. last time that it actually, uh, that it actually did. Um, yeah. yeah, I actually had down in my notes that Spock is like totally zen in this movie. Um, mm. Valeris talks to Spock and says, doesn't it feel like, you know, we've reached a, a turning point? And Spock says, history is replete with turning points, Lieutenant. You must have faith that the universe will unfold as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she wants to argue logic with him. And he says, and this is, this, this might even be Spock 3.5. Okay. okay. Uh, logic is the beginning of wisdom, Valeris, not the end. Yeah. Oh, Which is like, great, the, I mean, great. Spock 3.0 is maturing nicely. I mean, they got, yeah. they got the bugs worked out. They got the kinks worked out. <laughs> right. This right. is running on all cylinders. Sadly, the computer on which it runs is about to be retired. <laughs> right. Yes. But, you know, maybe, maybe we'll have some other unfeeling but learning to feel thing that we can follow in the future. Oh, that would be nice, wouldn't it? No, I, I feel like that's a great line. And, and, and it really does sum up Spock's journey quite mm-hmm. well. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you uh, you mentioned that one. Um, 
I I feel like this movie, and boy, please, you know, put down the pens and the keyboards right now, and let, let me explain this first. Um, that that this movie presents a challenge to our more conservative, and, and I use that with a little C, not not a big C, not as a political thing, but a challenge to our more conservative impulses. Um, this sort of presents this uh, this movie where ideology gets in the way of humanity. And um, we we see that again where Spock, you know, Spock 3.0, the Zen Spock, is imploring Kirk to go take on this mission because he is the best one to take on this mission, which is maybe arguable, um, actually quite arguable. By the way, that line, only Nixon could go to China, mm-hmm. um, it, it goes back to, again, who takes credit for it, either uh, Nimoy or Nick Meyer. <laughs> but uh, But it seemed like the appropriate line. As far as optics go, Kirk is absolutely the best person to do this. I mean, as mm. far as far as if you want to show, you know, that, that the Federation is serious about this, that Starfleet mm-hmm. is serious about this. Mm-hmm. We talked in uh, Star Trek Five in our podcast about Star Trek Five about how they would have a picture of, of Kirk taped up to the gunner station. Yeah. Right. If you yeah, see yeah. this, kill it. Right. It it, it is not uh, it is not unknown throughout the galaxy, apparently. That 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 Kirk has a has a, well he's always been sort of a thorn in the side of the Klingons and they've always been sort of a thorn in his side. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. guessing word has gotten round now that uh, it was a Klingon who killed his son. Yeah. So I mean, this is like I mean, to to make Kirk the guy who escorts them, really does step it up. I think like three notches. So I'd say he is the best guy for it. Like as far as the image of the whole thing goes. Now as far as actually you know. But listen, just drive the ship, okay? Don't talk yeah. to anybody. Don't do anything. <laughs> right. Don't invite anybody over. Right. If stuff goes off, you know, be found in your bunk asleep. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you you pulled that line uh, that Kirk has. How on earth can history uh, get past people like me? Yeah. You know, he, he is self-aware of um, uh, probably this being – if not outright a bad idea, at least a dangerous idea. Oh, but, but I, I get it. I get it that um, you know this shows how serious the Federation is. It's interesting though. You say that you say that he's aware that it's a bad idea at that point. I think he's more lamenting the fact that he can't get over what he can't get over. At least not to this point. I mean, you get a mm. you get a parallel line from Chancellor Gorkan um, mm. or Gorkan or Gorkan. Um, if there is to be a brave new world, our generation is going to have the hardest time living in it. Mm-hmm. Gorkin says to Kirk, this actually goes back to what you were saying earlier about the fact that they're, that everybody looks older. Yeah. Everybody does look older, but they're not, everybody looks older and they're playing older as well. And I kind of yeah. appreciate that. You talked about yeah. the fan dancing and the horses and the rock climbing and no amount of physical activity is going to hide the fact that they're getting older. They right. look older. In Star Trek V. In Star Trek VI, they're not only not hiding it, they're playing to it. They're not playing it up. This is not, you know, oh, my aching bones and my sciatica, but I'm at a rally for one more go. You know, it's more like, I mean, (laughs) it really is. It's like, like, man, this is tough, and we've been at this for a long time, and I'm kind of set in my ways now, and, and a lot is being asked of me. And it, yeah. and it, it it sort of it, it sort of it sort of plays very well in that. To me, Kirk's revelation was not putting me in this position is going to jeopardize this whole thing. 
his his ruminating on that note is more like, you know, I know that this has to happen, but I don't see how I can be a part of it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, and so then it's left for the rest of the movie to find out whether or not he can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, it goes back to this idea of what you're saying, that it's not just the physical change, but the, this mental thing. And that's what I meant about mm-hmm. um, the the challenge being to our our, our pre-existing impulses, you know, to just let things be the way they are. I don't have the energy to go change them, to go make that happen because, well, my ideology works and I'm going to leave it that way. Right. You oh. kids today with your clothes and your <laughs> hair <laughs> and, your, <laughs> and your music. Yeah. Do you yeah. want to talk about the, uh, you want to talk about the, um, some truly uncomfortable moments. I'm so yeah. glad the Klingons aren't an actual race. Yeah, because wow, there there was yeah. just the, the open hostility and racism. Although you don't have to be um, anything like a Mensa candidate to to apply this to you know, mm-hmm. I mean, just racism. Period. Um, the open hostility and the racism are, are like surprising, almost over the top. Yeah. Um, one gets a sense that the Klingons flying through Federation space with the Enterprise as an escort is a big deal, though, again, you know, since we just watched Star Trek V last week, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Paramount really would like to. I mean, if they had uh, if they had Dr. Roger, not Dr. Corby, Dr. Tristan Adams around, oh, right, they had yeah. Dr. Tristan Adams around, they probably would have uh, hooked up one of the Tantalus devices in every theater where Star Trek VI was playing <laughs> to make sure that it was uh, that Star Trek V was wiped clean before Star Trek VI <laughs> right. started. Right. Um, Suddenly, it's menacing to have the Klingons on board. Suddenly, it's it's huge tension where it had been fun the very mm-hmm. last time we saw this crew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting is we're still maturing the Klingons as a race, though it gets a little like wibbly wobbly, timey wimey here yeah. because because as this movie is in the theaters, Star Trek: The Next Generation has been on TV for three or four years, mm-hmm. and we've learned a whole lot more about the Klingons, and yet. We've never seen those Klingons and that proud history and, and what happened at Kittimer or any of that stuff. Star Trek VI, while being a, a, a fun movie on its own, and I won't say whether it's good or bad and holds up and all that stuff, but Star Trek VI, while being a movie on its own, is also doing a bit of retconning or doing a bit of bridge building. They're getting yeah. us from um, from where uh, Kirk and crew are to where – well, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Th- there will probably be some captain – Probably won't be a Kirk, but it's getting us from where we are today to where uh, Next Gen is uh, three or four years in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and we uh, obviously they do that with the cast by having um, uh, Michael Dorn playing of Worf's ancestors there. So you you can kind of, you know, put those pieces together. And and Uh, little known fact, uh, Brent Spiner actually played uh, Christian Slater in this movie. Oh, wow, wow. He He is is so so versatile. Just man of a thousand faces. <laughs> You'll yeah. see more of that, yeah, in uh, in other things, right? Um, uh, well, yeah. Let, let's talk about the the hostility and the racism. I mean, there are huge racial comments being made here in this movie, and like I said before, Gene Roddenberry was vehemently opposed to making his crew look anything less than perfect, um, and I think that I have to disagree with him on some level and I have to stand on the side of the movie. Um, Nick Meyer and I agree with him basically said that it's not out of the question that even in our enlightened future, that there would still be a tinge of prejudice from whatever source. And I think maybe in this movie, we get to look at it both ways where we get to look at Kirk's personal reaction 
to his son being killed by a Klingon. And then we get to look at everybody else and kind of the structure of the Federation and the structure of Starfleet ingraining uh, this, well, from we know that 70 plus years of uh, uh, hostility with the Klingons always being the other, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and we can sit here in this movie and we can pick apart every moment and every line and every reference to 20th century prejudice, whether it, it was the Nazis or our own civil rights kind of growing pains in this country. Uh, Kirk is a product of his time. He grew up only in a world where the Klingons were the other and the Federation was his side, the good side. I'm I'm with uh I'm with Gene Roddenberry. Now why is that? Because all of Star Trek is about faith that we're going to get past this. You're still going to you and this I mean put this in quotes whatever this is. Mm-hmm. This being our, you know, careless use of our resources, this being our um fear of the other, this being our hostility toward the other, this mm-hmm. being our trying to screw our fellow man just so we can have five more Quatlus. Mhm. Um, that, that was, the, that was the vision that he had. That was the vision he wanted. And that was the vision that largely, I mean, that at least got Star Trek up to Star Trek, the motion picture. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get a little more fighty, shooty, explodey, obviously yeah. in Star Trek yeah, two. Yeah. Um, but you still have some of those themes like in Star Trek four, uh, certainly. And some of it in Star Trek five. I mean, we, yeah, we yeah. again beat the crap out of Star Trek five because it was a bad movie, mostly because it was. But it was it was a great episode of Star Trek, um, or, or had the makings of a great episode of Star Trek. Anyway, there are themes that go all the way through, and and you might have a harder time telling a good story if you if you make your your people understanding. Mm-hmm. But, but he was able to do it. He got a TV show on the air doing that. You know, in the time when we're getting embroiled in the Vietnam War and when we're heading into a, a, a tremendous amount of civil rights unrest or, or civil unrest because of because of the way uh, different races are treated in this country. And, and, and to stand at that point when things look really terrible and say, you know what, this is going to be fine. Let me tell you this other really great story about how once we're awesome, we're mm-hmm. going to help other people be awesome. Mm-hmm. And then 25 years into it, you know, somebody else comes along and says, hey, let me tell you this story about how we suck just as much in the 23rd century as we do today. Mm. And maybe we'll get past it. And how we get past it is going to be kind of questionable. And, yeah, there might be some blood and there'll be some shooting. But in the end, we'll be OK. I mean, he wants us to go ahead and get to the part where we're OK. And then we go about making things better across the board. Well, yeah, but I mean, here's what I first of all, to me, it's a much more profound thing to have your lead character, the hero, have a chink in his armor that needs to be addressed mm-hmm. that it, it, you know that there is something about him that even as perfect and as heroic as Kirk has been um there's something then that suddenly makes him relatable when you, you take him down a notch and i'm not saying that his outright prejudice and and racism is relatable mm-hmm. um certainly hopefully it's not um but the idea that he has been through 25 plus years of going out there and seeking out new life and new civilizations and teaching his crew members to be better than themselves and to approach that with awe and wonder and not fear and hostility. That's all great. 
the reality is that we also have set up in Star Trek the idea of these decades and decades of hostility with, um, if we're not saying outright other races, certainly with other governments, with other ways of living um, in our battles with the the Romulans and the Klingons and whomever else might present a hostile threat. Mm -hmm. So I like the idea that we can say, look, we have gotten past so much and we do hold ourselves to a higher ideal and we do strive constantly to live up to that ideal. But here's that one more challenge to really put that to the test. It was easier for Kirk to look at the Romulan ears in uh, Balance of Terror and go, you know what? My best friend is a Vulcan and he looks like that and I know that he's not the enemy. And he's got to teach that lesson to the young crewman on board. To me, it's a much more profound thing and much more personal thing to flash forward 25 years and say, well, Kirk's been through a lot and he has the personal baggage of his son being killed by Klingons. And maybe he is inappropriately taking that out on all who are Klingons and not just Krug and his crew who uh, who carried that out. Um, I, I, I know what you mean, and I see where you're coming from, that the idea that Gene presented as we've gotten past, gotten past, gotten past. And fortunately, in 1991, when this movie came out, like you said, we've got three or four years of next gen under our belts where we can see that play out in a different way. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like we lose something in a 20th century and early 21st century audience being able to relate to it. We get to tell ourselves all the time, you know, look at the strides we've made. Look how far we've gotten. The civil rights movement was 50 years ago, you know, but and we get to pat ourselves on the back and say, job well done that we did that. But there is still racism and we need to recognize that and we need to fix that when we can. All right. Here's the thing, though. And unfortunately, Gene Roddenberry is not here to ask. Yeah, I don't know. And and so I'll just say for my part, because I can't speak for him, obviously. Mm-hmm. I would have no problem with Kirk having the issue that Kirk has. I think mm-hmm. you're right. That does make a more compelling. That does make a more compelling story for us when when our main character, who's always been our hero, mm-hmm. um, it turns out has feet of clay. Uh, the problem actually is there is nobody around who doesn't. You know, mm-hmm. Uhura is talking bad about them, and Chekhov is talking bad about them. The only person who's like totally on board, the only two people who are totally on board with this, or I guess three, are Gorkin, Spock, and Gorkin's daughter. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I would guess that the problem or the problem that I have with it anyway is just the open hostility towards these people. I mean, and and Kirk did not have this before the death of his son. I know you're talking about the 70 years, but Kirk did not have this towards the death of his son. I know there's a debate about whether or not the animated series would actually be canon, but go to the pocket universe, right? Mm -hmm. They end up Mm -hmm. working together with the Klingons to get out of the pocket universe. And then uh, the Klingons go back to their home world and they're like, hey, this awesome idea that I had, right? (laughs) <laughs> right, and Uhura's right. upset about that, and Kirk's like, "It eh, doesn't matter. That's, that's yeah. Klingons being Klingons. What matters is, you know, we're out, and and you know, we're back to doing what we're doing, right?" Yeah, I think yeah. I would I would feel better if Kirk were the old holdout, and we and we would still be able to identify with him. But you've actually got, I mean, all of Federation is a racist society in this movie. I mean, well, not all of it. But well, the, I mean, the, but the president isn't, and the, the president we, isn't right. Yeah, but we higher ups that there are others who aren't. Higher right? ups in the Federation are certainly, and the crew is walking around going, "Ah, oh, that smell." 
I mean, they, they can mm-hmm. you smell that smell? See, there are all kinds of songs in this movie. Right. Um, I mean, there there is open hostility, and it's and it's not even really addressed. I mean, it's kind of addressed when the Klingons leave. Kirk's like, "Wow, we were kind of jerks, huh?" Night. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's it's just, and I mean, he does, and he does lament later in his personal log. He's like, "Yeah, we really, we really probably didn't behave." But he's not at that point calling up and apologizing. I mean, it's it's. It just the whole lot of them seems like it just it just feels icky and that, and I think that's why I I think I think you'd still stay true to the Gene Roddenberry uh, idea if if everybody was fine with this except for Kirk because Kirk is still who we're going to follow and you might still have Kirk you know tempted to throw a monkey wrench in the whole thing and of course then you still have Chang I mean you can still show the racism from the other side you can still show the hostility from the other side you can still show the dangers of it but. I don't know. I mean, this uh, the Federation and Starfleet seem to sort of regress in mm. uh, in this story. Well, maybe that's my own prejudice: is that it, it's a little too hard to imagine uh, a, a socio political quasi military structure as big and far reaching as powerful as the Federation that would be perfect. Because I think this is a very difficult word. You know, with, there's something in this movie that says, "Look, the Federation isn't perfect." We aren't perfect, certainly as individuals. We still have something to learn. And I think that's okay because I think that's another part of Star Trek is saying that we can learn these things and we can overcome them. So the the parallel can still exist and it can still be at least to me maybe a little more believable. Um, it, it's interesting. You, you were talking about the, the open hostility and racism. Um, there were lines that were dropped from this movie, uh, Nichelle Nichols refused to say the line, but would you want your daughter to marry one regarding the Klingons? Mm. Um, even Chekhov's line, guess who's coming to dinner regarding, <laughs> you know, uh, re- regarding the, the movie in which, uh, Spencer well, Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, Jane mm-hmm. Fonda, Sidney Poitier. There you go. Is that right? You, that is correct. Yes. Yeah, look at yeah. that. Um, so, yeah, yeah, the, the, there is even more outright hostility and racism that was cut. It's interesting that uh, Brock Peters, who played Admiral Cartwright in this, you know, he has that that vitriolic mm-hmm. monologue at the beginning. And which is a which is a borderline bonk bonk on the head thing, but very well done. I mean, yeah, when, when you yeah. have when you have um, when you have an older um, uh, black man. Yeah. Saying, "Ooh, them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Oh wow, yeah, this is uh, that's pretty illustrative. Well, and he had trouble getting through it, but but he got it. You know, he understood that that was part of the message of this movie. Right. You know, as enlightened as we may be, we may also still hold on to this bit of us that is ugly and uh, hopefully can be purged. Yeah. No, don't misunderstand. If you're going to take the story that way, there are many mm-hmm. ways that this story is very well played. There are many ways that it's very well acted and well written. Mm-hmm. It must have, I mean, and part of this, I mean, can you imagine working for 25 years on a bright, shining example of what the future can be, and mm-hmm. then maybe a month before you die? Yeah. Having people go, yeah, but that's just not realistic. Well, of course it's not realistic. We have warp drive <laughs> and transporters and Vulcans, and there was a cat lady walking around on the bridge of one Enterprise at some point, and a guy with three arms and three legs. We're right. not talking about realism. We're yeah. talking about what we want, and, and because that's how you get what you want, right? Is you first talk about what it is that you want. 
As you believe, so shall you do. So oh, shall you do. Oh, so no. shall you do. <laughs> and seriously, I mean, but that seriously, yeah, yes, yeah. we can make fun of that episode over and over and over again, but there is truth to that statement. Yeah. If you want to get to point B from point A, you got to talk about point B. You don't talk about, ah, it's kind of difficult to go to point B, so maybe we're going to go to a place that's like point B. It's got some of the same stuff, but yeah, I mean, it just... Well, that, that's what's interesting to me, though, Ken, is that these are the steps in between. The sort of peels back that layer and says, except, except we had already taken these steps. I think that's the part that's so frustrating. You've got Kirk standing with Klingons. You've got, I mean, the whole crew standing with Klingons. Klingons uh, hung out on that space station during uh, the Trouble with Dribbles, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and it was hostile and it was tense and it ended up in the world's longest bar fight. <laughs> right. But right. I mean, they hung out. You know, for a while. They they didn't hang out and they were pals, but they hung out. In Star Trek V, they're actually hanging out. They're having a good time. A couple of the uh, a couple of the um a couple of the crewmen of the Enterprise are actually uh, kind of ogling uh one of the one of the Klingon women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and as as horrible and cartoony and certainly it's not right to just, you know, openly ogle women that way, um, as horrible and cartoony as Star Trek V was it, it was actually further along in relations between the Klingons and the Federation than this movie is. Forgive me, I, I, I'm I'm knowing now because I could have suspected if I had thought about it, if I had researched. But you know, mm-hmm. that takes time and brain energy. <laughs> it's not surprising to me that Gene Roddenberry did not like some of the choices made in here, and I kind of I kind of want to defend his his thinking on that yeah. because yeah. I mean, this was his idea. Go make Babylon Five. <laughs> let's, let's let's talk about one of the other things that he didn't like. All right, um, Colonel West. So I I'm already that. again it. I'm already again it. Yeah. All right. All right. Go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. Let, let's talk about that. It was the the character played by Rene Aubergenois, cut from the theatrical release, mm-hmm. um, and he was sort of a uh, a black ops character from Starfleet. Uh, he was among the conspirators. You know, we named uh, the the ones like Cartwright and like Chang. Uh, we named, but he was supposed to have been among them who wanted to see the Klingon Cold War continue. Mm -hmm. And then from that Federation perspective, the Klingon Empire crumble. Um, And depending on the cut that you see, he is the man wearing the Klingon outfit and makeup in the climax of the movie at the Kittimer Peace Talks. So that Klingon that Scotty comes up and shoots, who's hanging out in the... uh, in the second floor with the uh, phaser rifle, mm-hmm. um, that would have been revealed to have been a human Colonel West. And it was one of those moments that guess, really rubbed Gene the wrong way that a Starfleet officer would be an assassin. Like a Scooby-Doo moment. Yeah, yeah, totally. Who was he really? Right. Old man Smithers. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Colonel West. Yeah, if you uh, if if you're watching it repeatedly, and if you know that that's coming, you actually still see uh, you see part of that yeah. um, in the end scene because that Klingon and Klingons have really seriously purple blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Klingon laying on the ground is is very definitely bleeding human blood. Right, but they don't you know they don't mention it. They just step over him and you know do the slow clap. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting that he would have also in that cut uh, been aiming for Valeris because he knows that she knows who the other conspirators are, et cetera. Yeah. She's um, already snitched. Yeah. 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 
So, um, but yeah, I, maybe that's one that I'm willing to forgive that they cut that out. And I do side with uh, Jean on that one. Yeah. Let me back up because we're about to get into this. She didn't actually snitch. She's already revealed the information or the information has already been revealed because Valeris was part of it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's the best way to say it. Cause she, yeah. she very much did not willingly give up this information. We got a lot of emails from our yes, listeners we did. <laughs> asking us to address the Spock and Valeris mind meld and how that is an incredibly intimate violation. Um, and it does almost go into the territory of rape. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it also has it has a parallel to our own questions about using oh, what, what's the term that we'll use can enhanced interrogation techniques. Mm-hmm. Um I was pleased in that moment to see that the others on the bridge have a very kind of visceral reaction to the moment. Um, but it felt to me like there was some dialogue missing that led up to that moment. Um, something that would have acknowledged the, the, the maybe difficult ethical territory that they're on uh, and about what was going to happen. Which is weird, right? Because we've done it a million times. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually wondering... And my assumption is it's actually no less um, intrusive any other time. I don't know if this is direction. I don't know if this is uh, Kim Cattrall actually acting that very well because she did. I And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we can talk about whether or not we like her as a Vulcan uh, mm-hmm. later. But um, you can't fault those 30 seconds, maybe 45. And what's weird is it's only 30 seconds or 45 seconds, but man, they are a tough 30 or 45 seconds because yeah. she's, I mean, she is unquestionably being violated Yeah, in a way that we have never really looked at the mind meld or mind probe that way before. I mean, there's always intimacy, you know, when Spock, you know, does the whole your thoughts and my thoughts, mm-hmm. or our mm-hmm. thoughts, whatever he says, you know, I mean, and, and there's always a bit of, there's always a bit of trepidation about it too. It's like, okay, so I'm going to, we cool. You know, mm-hmm. but it's always been cool. And yeah. any time that it's happened against anybody's will, it was like, ah, threw a wall and he knocked him out and, you know, <laughs> he needed information. So he went and got the information because it's fuck. And all he does is put his hands on him and, you know, he gets the thing he needs and he's done. Even with the Horda. Yeah. Even, well, with the Horda, I, I got the sense that it was consensual. With the yeah, well, you can't ask a Horda if it's consensual. Well, not until you're actually in the middle of it, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, yeah that's a good question. That's a good. Oh, man. Yeah. I'm yeah. assuming it was okay with the Horda. Okay. It seems like the Horda was looking for understanding the whole time. Right. And that is what we're talking about, except that in this scene, it really, I mean, it felt it. it she was violated. Now. Yeah. Then you do get to the whole enhanced interrogation techniques question. There is no way I would say that Spock should have just been like, well, there's nothing we can do. And then Kirk's going to be like, well, you could, you know, you could mind probe her. And, you know, ooh, ideally Spock says, yeah, I can't, though. Maybe we'll have to try something else. Because, I mean, they had to get that information. Uh, the, the, the galaxy was about to go into years and years and years and years and years and years of war. Yeah. Based on what was going to happen next at the same time. You know, I want to be the guy who says, no, we don't stick things under people's fingernails because we don't do that. Mm-hmm. It's the Baylock versus, um, well, it's the Baylock versus the Star Trek six question. Honestly, mm. Kirk wouldn't have, Kirk wouldn't have tortured Baylock. Right. Had it come to that. But this Kirk's like, Hey, get in there and find out what we need. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, and that's why I, I feel like there were 
lines missing there because it does open up this whole other problem where you go, okay, well, if this is okay with Kirk mm-hmm. and this is okay with Spock 3.5, like we've said, is <laughs> is very grounded and is very kind of at peace with his emotional life as well as his logical life. You know, mm-hmm. he's a different, he's just a different character here. Um, it does then sort of make you ask, well, is this the kind of thing that is okay with Starfleet? Is this the kind of thing that would be okay? Is there some Federation rule somewhere that says you can't force a mind meld, that you can't extract information if that person is unwilling? I mean, you know, it, you were talking about um, uh, uh, the Tantalus device, or, mm-hmm. or, or I'm sorry, be, being on uh, uh, Tantalus and um using Dr. Tristan Adams' device to wipe people's minds. You know, th- this seems, even in the enlightened future, there's something about that that is barbaric um, right. that we really had to question. You know, are we just back to a clockwork orange kind of thing where you go in and get to monkey around with people's psyches? So I don't know that there is a good answer to the way this scene plays out and really what we can address of them to say, wow, that seems really intimate and it seems like a violation and i'm glad that at least in some way they acknowledged it they acknowledged how difficult that was for everybody and like you said kim cattrall's acting in that moment uh made it even that much more intense yeah um but i don't know if there's a right or better answer to that scene and i think that's i mean that again that would go back to my defense of of gene roddenberry's um, wish that this wasn't happening in the Federation. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. he's had this faith that we're going to get through it. You know what I mean? It would be yeah. better. It would be better to tell that story between honestly the Romulans and somebody else to have it happen and us be witness to it, because then at least we can say, well, I don't know how we're going to get past it, but we're going to get past it because yeah. the, in this movie, two hundred years from now, we're still just. Screwing with the same stuff, you know what yeah. I mean? It would it would be better to be able to say, "Well, I don't know how we did it, but we did it." And so, knowing that we did it, now we just have to go ahead and do it. If if mm-hmm. you if you as 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 the as the keeper of the mythology say, "Yeah, we're we're really just as screwed up mostly," then as we are now, then I mean that that does sort of uh, detract a bit from the faith. You see, see here's the thing. Mm-hmm. The odd number movies may be difficult, but it's the even number movies that make me want to drink. (laughs) With its final mission flown under Kirk's command, does the last tale of the NCC-1701-A hold up decades after its first telling? And we kept kind of dancing around the issue of whether or not we liked this movie. And kind of more important to us on Mission Log is to ask whether or not this movie holds up. Um, and we kind of fold that into whether or not we like it. So, Ken, I, I pose that to you. Does the movie hold up? And also, do, do you like it? Is it a good movie? So tell me your thoughts. I think there's a lot of stuff. I, well, I want to actually add another question that we have never asked in these movies and maybe we should have while we were doing the movies 
and it might be something that we add going forward. Does it stay true to Gene Roddenberry's vision? And of course, the answer is no, because he said so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, right, right. Uh, does the movie hold up? I like the fact that even 25 years into the lives of these characters, we're still studying them and they're still studying themselves in a way. And I'm going to leave off the whole, you know, am I being racist? Am I not being racist? Am I being as understanding as I should be or could be or, you know, was 20 years ago? Um, Kirk says, you're a great one for logic. He says this to Spock. You're a great one for logic. I'm a great one for rushing in where angels fear to tread. We're two extremes. Reality is probably somewhere in the middle. I love the fact that 25 years into these characters, that we're still exploring these characters. Yeah. And these characters, I mean, and you can talk about, you know, there are some characters in this, in this uh, story who are totally open. There are other characters who are totally set in their ways. I like the fact that these characters are actually still willing to look at themselves. It's not Lethal Weapon 4. <laughs> lethal right. weapon 2 i mean lethal weapon was actually an examination of that character by that character lethal weapon 2 was a maturing of that character lethal weapons 3 and 4 were just blowing stuff up blowing as much stuff up as you can and they're not even comparable movies except that they span a number of movies i like the fact that you know these characters are still these characters never stopped evolving sometimes they got Sometimes their development was retarded by what the writer needed that week. McCoy was the one who was always sort of moved all over the map. I need him to be irascible this week. I need him to be a ladies' man. I need him to be an idiot. You know, yeah. I mean, he always got moved around. But overall, the characters, especially the Kirk and Spock characters, um, evolved. And even up to their last hurrah, they're still doing that. Um, he did, of course, leave uh, McCoy out of the triumvirate, which is which right. kind of sad. But, you know. He's been there, so it's okay. <laughs> um, th- that whole thing about you know uh, reality being between their logic and their and their um, their you know just rushing in their their you know fly by the gut. Um, that's kind of their relationship in a nutshell, and it really is neat to see that. Um, and uh, you know, it only took a TV series, a cartoon series, and six movies. <laughs> is that all <laughs> for that right. to happen right. um nowhere near as uneven as Star Trek Five. I mean, if you're doing it like we're doing it and watching him week to week. This movie, I mean, almost deserves an Academy Award for not being Star Trek V. Um, So does it hold up overall? It's a fun action movie. It is a little Matlock, but, you know, there are worse shows than Matlock. It was on for like seven or eight years, I guess. So, you know, (laughs) I don't know. I, I, I think it holds up. What about you? Yeah, well, I, it, here's the fun of this movie to me is that Nick Meyer wrote it like a Sherlock Holmes story. And and for that, it works incredibly well. Obviously, there there is the line that Spock has about uh, one of his ancestors. <laughs> and then you indicate that it is uh, Sherlock Holmes, whether he means that he is related to the fictional character or he is related to Arthur Conan Doyle. I thought that was a clever moment. And clearly, Nick Meyer's fingerprint on the script. Um, to me, it works incredibly well. It's a fun movie to watch, you know, a second or third time around once you know the reveal and mm-hmm. the plot, because you get to go back and see all the little clues stitch themselves together. Mm-hmm. So I, I like it when a movie can do that. Um, the writing here is great. Uh, uh, Meyer followed the threads that had been established in his previous movies, and I'm counting four uh, in there as well because he had a hand in it. Um, and, you know, we acknowledge at least briefly that David actually existed. And as you point out, even when we're not hitting you over the head with it, that's still a thread that continues that informs the action and informs the character throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I, I think it's a really fun movie. And I, you know, again, to Meyer's credit and to Nimoy's credit as well, because he had such a hand in the development of the story. There really is uh, something magical about the end of this as the send off to that crew, to that mm-hmm. cast. You know, um, they they hit all the right buttons. Um, even Kurt's line when uh, everything has happened at Kittermer and we've revealed everything. And I believe the president says, what is this about? And Kirk says, it's about the future. And that, I, that what a great line, because yes, that, that's what that moment is about. That's what fixing this problem is about. And that's what Star Trek is about. And, uh, and they seem to get it all right in, in this movie. I think it's a great argument and it's a great discussion to have about whether or not it fits Gene Roddenberry's vision. And I, I get it. I can see where those militaristic moments um, didn't jibe with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still stand on the side of saying, well, to me, this movie works because we get to dig deeper and probe a little further uh, into what makes these characters tick and hopefully, hopefully learn something from them. So speaking of learning, what kind of messages do we see here, Ken? Uh, well, there's the eco message that I mentioned earlier. That's not that's not you know driven home, which is actually which actually almost makes it a bit better in a way. It's not preachy. It's just wow, look at that. Mm-hmm, <laughs> they mm-hmm. totally misused their resources, and now you know they're dead. Um, there's a there's an underlying sort of things aren't always as they seem thing with this. Valeris mm-hmm. is a good guy. Oh wait a minute, no, she's not. Iman's hot. Oh wait, no, she's like a seven foot tall ape creature, or right. or or you know a four foot tall little kid, or you know right. something in between. Um, Klingons are the enemy. Oh well, no, they're our friends. No wait, they're our enemy. No wait, they're you know they're our friends. I mean, so I mean, just the idea of uh, examining and re-examining. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe that's a message I sort of pick up. Even if you decided um, re-examination is incredibly important. Um, I have a favorite dumb quote from somewhere. And I know it's a dumb quote. It's not a dumb quote, but it's from something dumb. Mm. And I can't remember what it's from, and I feel bad about that. It's a movie or a TV show that I've watched a million times, and I can't even picture it. I just know that it's not. It, it's a good line because every time it happens, I think, wow, I'm watching something dumb, and that line happened. Um, the, the, uh, the line is, the time to decide about people is never. Mm. Sure, be on your guard. Sure, be aware Sure, you know, know that there is the possibility for something bad to happen, but people aren't, I mean, the Klingons are not a bad race. The Klingons have been a bad race to this point. And this is something that Kirk's going to have a hard time getting over. He's decided, though, that they're terrible. And and certainly the movie could have ended with him, you know, hey, somebody's firing on that Klingon ship. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> you know, yeah, right, they're going right. to think we did it anyway, so why don't I get in a shot or two as well? Um the idea that it, I just, you know, going back to re-examine, I mean, what's, what's interesting to me is we were probably actually at a better, t- at a better time of relations with the Soviet union when this movie came out than we are with Russia. As we record this today, the Soviet yeah. union was still there, but I mean, uh, Gorbachev was, was, uh, I don't want to say he was everybody's pal, but he was, a, he was a more friendly, maybe more accessible leader. At least he seemed to be. Yeah. Um, than leaders before and then leaders after him, it suddenly seems. 
Um, so that's not a bad message uh, to have at that point. Yeah, I know these guys have been our enemy for a long time and they look like the enemy, but yeah, maybe get to know them. Yeah. So, so I'd say there's something about about appearances and examination that that sort of comes through here as well. Not a giant aha moment, I don't guess. Um, in fact, I really expected more of a Kirk speech at the end. The first time going back to rewatch this for this week, mm-hmm. I expected more of a. Um, oh well, let's go ahead because it'll be 20 years before we talk about it again, or 10. Uh, sort of like the speech at the end of End of Darkness. Mm-hmm. The speech mm-hmm. at the end of Darkness is bonk bonk on the head. Yeah. Um, and there have been a number of uh, Kirk speeches that have been as well. And this Kirk speech is like, uh, uh, the future. So good, <laughs> right. you know, right. and everybody's like, oh, yeah, the future. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, that, it was a little surprising how not illustrated that was. I mean, like it, there was no there was no bang at the end. Right. Yeah. To, to, yeah, to yeah, really yeah, drive yeah. the message home. But that's OK, because the message is still there, I think. Um, what did I miss? Well, uh, I don't think he missed anything. I mean, it, it, yeah, you, you have the eco message and um, obviously this thread of, of racism that runs throughout the movie is there to make us do what you describe, which is to reexamine because things are not always what they seem. So yeah. I think those are important. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, wait a second. Is it so obvious that we should also state it? Racism is bad. <laughs> well, we did in... Um, uh, let this be your last battlefield. Yeah, so, no, but I yeah. mean, I mean that is also a message in this movie. Yeah, right. We shouldn't, <laughs> well, probably shouldn't leave that one out. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> uh, um, I, I read an interview with uh, the director, Steven Soderbergh, not that long ago, and he had a great line in there. He said, no is easy, yes is hard. And I thought that nicely summed up what goes on in this movie. Uh, for Kirk, it was very easy to say, no, let them die. If we just don't do anything, mm-hmm. we're fine. Spock says, you have to do the yes thing. You, and when you say yes, there's a responsibility that comes after that fact. Because then you have to go do the work. And then you have to follow up on it. And it might take time and resources, not money, because there's no money. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it is going is going to take a commitment to see that that happens. And... Again, you know, you want to parallel that to the the world now in the early 21st century and ask if that message holds up. Well, yeah, because we're faced every single day all the time, uh, politically, socially, economically, environmentally, with things that challenge us to say, well, no is the easy answer here. If we do nothing, then, yeah, you know, we can survive along in some way or, or, or another, at least for, you know, X number of years or X number of generations. But if we do the hard thing, which is to say, yes, that we need to be responsible for these things, then we actually have to commit to it. And we have to maybe give up some of the conveniences that we have now in order to start paving the way for that better world tomorrow. Um, And that seems like a very good summary of what Star Trek has always been about from the very beginning is that that commitment to go out there and face the universe with awe and wonder and commit to commit to exploring it, commit to being better than you were when you left. So that's the way I look at the messages in this movie. You know, it's really sad. What's that? Star Trek's over. That's it. I mean, they, oh my gosh, they, you're they, right. They flew right into so, the sun, and yeah. you know, and a, then so I, I w- will never talk again. And I, I know um, it's sad because yeah. I thought this was supposed to be like a longer show. Yeah, wow, I'm shocked that it flew by so fast. <laughs> Wait a minute. I know what we're doing. What are we doing? 
we're setting up the fact that we are in for a very, very big transition here on Mission Log. Next Mission Log, there's a whole new generation. Next time, Ken, we get to talk about Star Trek, the next generation, as we transition into their pilot encounter at Farpoint, parts one and two. Some of the music formation log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. There is something for almost everyone in this movie, I don't remember a single talking computer though. Maybe in Star Trek yet to come. And transmission. 